tonight we continue our study, taking kind of the next step in our study of heaven and the afterlife. One of the major points of the afterlife is judgment. We all will face judgment, but I think there's a big misconception that people have is everyone seems to conflate the judgments and view them as all the same. And they are not the same. There are at least four major judgments. Now, you might scratch your head and say, well, I thought you said there were three last week. You're right. I did say there were three last week. And for some reason, I missed a very important judgment. And so Pastor Dave graciously um, pointed this out to me. And my only thought is maybe with it being a little bit less formal in the sense of there's not an official statement of a gathering for judgment in the same way as these other three, there is a distinctive judgment. And so I want to go through those passages that talk about that. And I think it sheds greater light on everything. So I have gone ahead and added an entire section. So I've reprinted the notes. But I also went ahead and included a diagram just to hopefully help simplify all of these judgments in where, which there's, you could break them up into two categories. There's believer and unbeliever judgments, and then there's kingdom entrance judgments, and there's two of each. So there's a believer's judgment, which is the Bema Seat, an unbeliever's judgment, which is the Great White Throne, There is, for kingdom entrance, a Jewish entrance judgment. And then there's a Gentile entrance judgment. Makes sense, right? And so I think it's appropriate to handle this um, fourth judgment because it really brings everything full circle that every single person has been dealt with. Those who were believers in the church age, those who were unbelievers throughout history, those who... um, survive the tribulation, what happens to them? And so they will fall under uh, judgment in those categories. But they're all for different things as well. There might be some similarities, but different uh, points or basis of judgment. And so with that, what is, just to kind of do a little bit of review, we looked at the Bema Seat. What is the Bema Seat judgment? What is a Bema seat in the historical sense? Judgment seat. Yeah, it's a judgment seat, right? Where did these judgment seats exist in the first century? In the synagogue. In the synagogue, right? The Jews had their own form of judgment seat in which all matters within the synagogue would be brought there for determining a verdict. And then there's also, we looked at the example uh, in Acts, I think, 18, of the city. Yeah, Acts 18, 12 through 17, the city had a Bema seat, and they brought Paul to the city judgment seat, and the guy, what did the guy say? This is a matter for you Jews, not me. <laughs> I don't want any part in your uh, discussion or arguments. And so, but we see nonetheless that historical fact. And so Paul, talking about the judgment seat of Christ, he's making that connection that all believers within the church will stand before Christ someday. Now, who is judged? I kind of gave it away, but who is judged at this judgment? Believers, I see Donald mouthing. Now, who is doing the judging? And I also gave that away. The Bema Seat of who? Christ. Christ. So he's the one judging. 
Now, what's the basis of judgment? The basis. Rewards, right? So it's not determining whether someone is saved or not, right? It's determining what did saved people do in their saved bodies. And we, there might be some nuance in how you see rewards and loss of rewards. I see loss of rewards as speaking of loss of what could have been. And I, I correlate that with uh, Ephesians 2.10. We were saved for good works that God has prepared for us. And so I think God has a purpose for each of us. And when we walk with him and we grow spiritually, we are fulfilling that purpose that he has called us to. Now, if a believer does not do that, what happens? They're not going to do those things that God called them to, right? And if they don't do the things that God called them to, don't they lose the, the potential of rewards? That's how I take it. Now, if you take it a different way, that's entirely fine. I understand that sometimes there's ambiguity around some of these uh, topics. And so we talked about, is sin an issue at the judgment seat? No. I don't think so. Why? Amen. They were already dealt with, right? And so if they were, let's hypothetically say they were, what would be a great response for us at the judgment seat? Lord, didn't you pay for this? And what would he say? You're right. (laughs) Next. (laughs) And so sin is not an issue necessarily. Um, It might be an issue in the sense of our sin kept us from living the Christian life to receive those rewards. Um, and it, whether or not they're brought up, I, I'm not sure. That's an area that just seems, that's the ambiguous part of the, the judgment. But what I know, based on the character of Christ, is he's not going to go through our life almost like a, putting the movie on, right? And taking us through every single deed or mistake that we have made and make us feel guilty or make us feel ashamed. I think the shame will come naturally. Right? Because when we're finally standing before him, we'll realize, wow, there's a whole lot left on the plate that didn't get eaten, so to speak, that I didn't do. That's why I think the challenge that Paul and many of the New Testament writers give is we don't want to be ashamed at his coming. Why might we be ashamed if we're found not doing or living the way that God has called us to? And so oftentimes the Bema Seat of Christ is used for motivation in the Christian life. So any comments or questions before we move on to the next judgment? Or I do have one, actually. Uh, Go to 2 John. Dave also pointed this out as a question. So in light of kind of how I explain things and how I understand the judgment seat, there's a potential issue with 2 John 8. 2 John verse 8. So it says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, that, in light of what I said, I said that I don't think that rewards gained can be lost, only the, the rewards that would have been because the work wasn't done, if that is clear. <laughs> so with that, does this contradict it? It might, it could, right? But as I was kind of looking at this, 
Look at verse 7. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. So I would understand John is saying there are false teachers out there. And if you get swayed by false teachers or your church gets swayed by false teachers, what's going to happen? You're going to get off course. You won't be following Christ that we taught anymore. And so I would take uh, that we look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for. I think that what we worked for is the apostles' ministry among them, that that's not lost. And then he adds, so that we would may receive a full reward. Now, that's just a possibility. That's just at a glance at looking at it. Understand that I'm going to be extremely biased because if this does contradict my view, what do I have to do? Rewrite this whole study, right? And for sake of time, I'm not willing to do that at this point. (laughs) Not that I'm not willing in general. I am willing to change my mind. But I think that's a possible solution to that question. So any, yeah. Ezekiel 18.24. And you might want to keep a finger in Ezekiel while we're here, by the way. 18.24.34. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does... Shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Now, I would say, because you've mentioned this before, and so I did have a chance to kind of briefly look at it. I would say that this can communicate the opposite of what I am teaching. But I think under the economy that Israel was in, What God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel is that you guys have gone too far. Judgment is coming. And even if you turn and start living righteously, it's too late. You're going to face judgment is kind of how I would would see that. that 21 doesn't say that. 21 says, if a wicked man turns from all his sins and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. It's a conundrum. I will look at that in more detail. Any thoughts or comments? Yeah. Is this referring to a spiritual death or a physical death? It's always a fair question. Um, I would say probably contextually physical death. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. So, any other thoughts? All right, I will get back to you on that, uh, Lord willing, next week. Or preferably the rapture comes first. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great passage that a lot of people use to teach you can lose your salvation. Mm, Sure. And obviously we know it's not teaching that. And we know, well, and that brings up a good point, is we don't want to ever determine a major point of doctrine on one verse. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing. But to, to Dave's point, people will take passages like this and say, look, see here, 
You could lose your salvation. Well, if we just, for sake of argument, granted that argument, this is the only time against 200 plus that talks about eternal security. And so we have to be careful. We have to understand things uh, in, it, in the whole council. Yeah, uh, but with that, it, no, and not, Karen doesn't take it that way at all. Um, <laughs> but just a, a good point. <clears throat> all right, moving on. Surviving Jews' judgment. Has anyone ever heard of the surviving Jews' judgment? <laughs> okay. Now, this is something I will say I am somewhat familiar with, but it, it hasn't been... I found as I kind of went through this study, it was like a very satisfying final piece of the puzzle. Not the final piece, but you know what I mean? When you have that final piece and you put it and the picture all comes into focus and you can see what the, the puzzle is supposed to be. Uh, that's kind of how, as I looked at it in an organized fashion, how things fit. And it's quite satisfying. Now, I was going to actually bring up this point, but I didn't know what really to do with it until now. So go to Daniel. Keep a finger in Ezekiel 20. Uh, or 18, but two chapters later. But then go to Daniel for a moment. Which the end of Daniel seems to suggest a judgment happens for the Jews at the end. Now, has anyone ever heard or are you familiar with the 75-day interval from the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the kingdom? So a few nods, right? But otherwise not too familiar with it, right? And even I can say, being familiar with it, it's still, um, there's a lot of unknowns until you understand, because the, the natural question is, well, what are they going to be doing for 75 year, or, uh, days? You know, if Jesus is here, we're here, let's get the ball rolling. Let's start, right? This is a long time to be waiting. Well, I think if we account for these two middle judgments, the sheep and goats judgment and the Jewish kingdom entrance judgment, it makes perfect sense, right? I think that I'm giving my study away, but I think that those two judgments take place in that 75-day interval. And so Daniel chapter 12 seems to allude to a judgment. If you look at verse 8, <clears throat> Daniel wants to know more. And in verse 8, it says, Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So there seems to be a division between peoples, right? 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now pay attention, 90, not 60. 1,260 days would be um, three and a half years according to a lunar calendar, right? So where's that 30 days coming from? Well, he just adds it. He's just telling uh, what is happening. And then he says, blessed is he who waits and comes to 1,335 days. So 30, you add it together and I have the, <laughs> because as, I, as you well know, I'm not great with math on the fly. I have it written down on page 11. 
about midway down, when is this judgment? During the 75-day interval, Daniel 12, 11 through 12. Three and a half years is 1,260 days based on a 360 lunar calendar. 1,290, so that's 30 days past the end of the tribulation. And then he says in verse 12, blessed is he who waits and comes to 1,335. So you add that and you get, you add 30 plus 45, you get 75 days. Now past that, we're not told. And I'm, I'm almost certain that Daniel probably wanted to ask him, hold on, what, is, what do you mean 1,335 days? You just gave me the, the 77s. And you told me there's going to be a break. So three and a half, 1260, I'm following you. But where's 1290 coming from? Where's 1335 coming from? But based on the last time he asked and the response, he probably just bit his tongue. And um, as he said, went his way. But nonetheless, there are 75, there's a 75 day interval between the end of the tribulation and the, the inauguration of the kingdom. So that doesn't give us a whole lot of details, right? Well, look at Ezekiel 20. Now, I think after we look at these verses, the, the judgment aspect of Daniel 12 will become more clear. But if you go to Ezekiel 20, and let's start in verse 33 for context. As I live, says the Lord God, Surely, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered. With a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt." So I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, a sign of judgment, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, what covenant might that be? I think the new covenant would fit well, right? I will bring you in the bond of the new covenant, or the, the covenant. Now, I will say this, just a pause. Uh, I want to make a point. I'm really ex getting really excited about our study in Matthew. But I think that what's interesting about the context of Matthew, especially with the preaching of the kingdom, Jesus is preaching the kingdom and in many ways is functioning like an Old Testament prophet, calling the nation of Israel out of their disobedience, back into obedience of their Mosaic covenant obligations that they have broken. And I believe that should that generation have done so, the new covenant would have been made with them. And they would have been able to live the law because the law would be written on their hearts, right? And then they would receive their kingdom. They would, in other words, receive the full blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So I think that this covenant could be either or in the sense of I will bring them under the bond of the covenant. Well, how would he do that? The new covenant, right? The new covenant will perfectly bring them under the, the covenant that they continuously broke throughout history. And so that's just a, a quick blurb on that. Verse 38, I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, 
but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So there's judgment taking place here, right? Now, who is being judged in this context? Israel. So apparently there are those who will, quote, pass the judgment. And by implication of those who don't pass not entering the land, what's the implication of those who do, who do well at this judgment? They'll enter. They'll enter the land. They'll be brought under the bond of the covenant. And I think they're ultimately going to receive the full blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So that, that kind of wraps up the Old Testament side of things, but I think Jesus really adds a lot of detail when you get into Matthew 24. So go to Matthew. Now, because we're doing an overview on judgments, we're not going to do a full exposition on each of these parables, but I do want to say a few things before we look at parables that you need to understand that the word parable... It, it, it's a compound Greek word that basically means to cast alongside or to throw alongside. A parable, in other words, is a figure of speech that illustrates something recently taught or previously taught. And so the parable is used to throw alongside a very visual, tangible experience that illustrates the point that he's making. Now with that, I don't want to make it too confusing I would say parables are non-revelatory primarily. In other words, parables don't reveal new truth. Except, I think Matthew 13 seems to break that because I think in Matthew 13, the mystery kingdom parables, they do seem to be revelatory. Christ is revealing something to his apostles in parabolic form that is important for them to know about the kingdom. Now, don't get lost on that. We'll, we'll touch on that here in a moment. But parables are something thrown alongside to illustrate something that was just taught. Now, with that, you need to understand my approach to parables. I am a minimalist. Now, with that, it's been well noted by, I, I think, all conservative commentaries would, commentators would agree that parables are designed to communicate a singular point. And so when I say I'm a minimalist, I try to adhere to that single point, and I'm very cautious to not read into the details of the, the characters, what the characters are wearing necessarily, because sometimes that is pertinent information. But I, don't, I think it's, we're set up to make fallacies when we read into the details of a parable that aren't intended with the main point of what the, the parable is designed to do. So the parable is designed to make one point. Now with that, jump to the beginning of Matthew chapter 24 for just a moment because context is king, right? If we want to understand these parables, don't we need to understand the context? So in 24 verse 1, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came, to, came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So they were quite proud of this. Verse 2, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3 leads to a very fair question. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Now, when we cover this in Matthew, we'll look more at, okay, is this two questions? Is it three questions? Um, But nonetheless, what is being asked here is what is being answered by Christ. That much is clear. Now, a quick rundown through the rest of 24. I take the position that verses 4 through... Uh, 4 through 14 is all future. In other words, there are some within our camp, dispensational camp, that will take this as this is kind of the experience of the present age. The wars and rumors of wars. Have you heard that before? Someone say, you know, we're experiencing right now wars and rumors of wars. Well, I've heard it, and I've heard it a lot. And that very well could be, but I don't think that this passage is present. I think it's entirely future. If I was being technical, I would say 4 through 14 is the first half of the tribulation, whereas 15 through 28 is the second half. And so he's laying out essentially Daniel's 70th week. Now we're in 21. He talks about uh, the great tribulation, or excuse me, we're in 29. Immediately he talks about his return. The sign, what, what will be the sign of your coming, they asked. Well, he gives that to them in 29 through 31. And then he gets into parables. So do you see what he did? He's, te- he's answering their question by giving them a rundown of the tribulation. First half, second half, and then the sign of his coming. And then he gives the parable of the fig tree. And then he gives, and not everyone sees it this way, but I see it as a parable or uh, at least a simile, very bar, minimum it's a simile, like the days of Noah, or as the days of Noah. And he uses, of the, that day and hour, no one knows. So when he returns, no one knows. And we'll, we could talk about that later. And then he gets into what we're going to look at now with the first parable of the slaves. But before we look at this, who's the audience? Who is he talking to? Disciples. And these disciples are Jew or Gentile? Jew. And so you could say that what is being communicated has to do with all the Jews who will be the primary focus during the tribulation, right? Which he just talked about. And so in light of all of the tribulation events, Jesus gives these parables, many of which have to do with watching or being watchful. We don't know the day or the hour, so we need to be watchful. And I think he's talking about the Jew. The Jew needs to be watchful. They don't know, so they need to be prepared. And so when we come to Matthew 24, verse 45, we get the first parable of the slaves or servants. And it says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty scary, right? Now, I want to be cautious. 
because there are some that see this as speaking to believers. And I don't see that in this text. I think he's talking about Jews. And so those who are in jeopardy of being cut in two would be unbelieving Jews. And this deals with the concept, should believers fear out of dark, outer darkness? No, I don't think so. Believers should not fear outer darkness as their personal uh, experience or possible personal experience. And so um, we will look at who's, doing, who's judging, who's judged, and the basis here in a moment. But the next par- or any questions on that parable before we move on? Yeah. I'm just going to mention it may not be a problem for anybody here, mm-hmm. but I can't tell you how many conversations over the last 40 years I've had with people going through these three parables thinking because they're not being faithful at the moment, they're in danger of losing their salvation. This is just such a major issue for people who believe you can lose your salvation. Yeah. Well, and as biblically-minded people, we want to be accurate, right? Namely, because if we're not accurate, we run the, the risk of spiritual abuse. Now, Amanda and I have talked a lot about spiritual abuse, and I think... Most often, spiritual abuse is unintentional. It's not intended by the abuser, but it happens because maybe an understanding of this text or a a teaching of this sort of text causes fear and trepidation in the individual believer in which we're not called to that, right? I would remind you of Romans 8.1, which says what? There is therefore possibly condemnation if you don't shape up and cooperate. No condemnation. And how can he say that? Because of the beautiful lead up to it in chapters 1 through 7. Right? Our position is firm in Christ. If you have believed to the man who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And by the way, that's the righteousness that is required to have eternal life. It's an imputed righteousness. It doesn't originate with us. It's imputed. It's credited to our account. And so I I think we have to be very careful with this. But at the same time, because there are those within our circle that might disagree, we want to also be kind, right? It's, It's great if you have the truth, but if you don't have love, what good is it, right? And so that's the parable of the slaves. Next is the parable of the ten virgins. 25 verse 1 says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed... They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Afterward, the, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day 
nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. <coughs> also very scary, right? If we apply this to a believer today, it sounds like maybe when it's all said and done, my faith in the, in the cross work of Christ wasn't enough. But is that what he's saying? No, he's talking to Jews who are going to endure the tribulation, which, by the way, I think speaks to the imminency because Christ is speaking of these things, and I think Christ himself doesn't know the day or the hour. And so I think he's saying to the present generation that's alive listening to him, this is true for you. Be prepared. And since you don't know when I will return, don't be the foolish virgins who didn't have the necessary things in place to enter. That's the, the main point of the message is be prepared. Be ready. You don't know. Is there a question forming back there? I think so. Yes. Uh, the, the virgins... Um, They're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I guess when you're being ready, how are they to be ready? I mean, because salvation has always been by way of faith. Mm -hmm. And so if five of the virgins went to go get oil, um, did they not have faith? And while these five had faith, and these these were, um, I guess, was the Holy Spirit imparted to them like he was in the Old Testament versus... Uh, now that we're talking New, New Testament time still, basically, but the, the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit's not there. Yeah. So how, how does all Yeah, that well, and that's where I would go back to, that's why I'm a minimalist when it comes to parables. So I wouldn't read any of that. I think Jesus' main point is be ready. How is one ready? By being a believer. And so if you wait until it's too late, what's going to happen? I don't know you. Why is it? Wise and foolish, right? So we have to, uh, that's the, the main difference that Jesus is saying. How is one ready? Believe. Believe in me and you're ready. In fact, it's funny because we're ready, right? Now that doesn't mean us believers are going to be doing the right thing when Christ returns, but we're ready in the sense that we're believers and he's going to take us with him at the rapture. And whenever that, the rapture is spoken of, it talks about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians, right? Chapter 4 is rapture. What's chapter 5? Day of the Lord. And what does he say? That day comes like a thief in the night. And if you pay attention to the pronouns in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, they, sudden destruction comes upon them, but you are not, you are of the day and not of the night. And, and so I think the, the simple point that Jesus is making here is very similar. In that how, are you, how does one make themselves ready? How are they a wise virgin? Believe. And we'll see that further developed in the, the, other, um, the other parables. Any other questions before we go to the parable of the talents? Just yeah. emphasizing your minimalist interpretation. Jesus doesn't pay any attention to the fact that they all ten of them got drowsy. Yes, that's yep. not an issue. Yeah. Um, so the, the only difference is five were wise and five were foolish. Yeah, right. And that's I think that's where I'm only comfortable going. And and with that, parables are designed to kind of be a little bit punchy. They pack a punch when you hear it after hearing what Jesus said about the terrible tribulation that's going to befall them. And then he makes these parables. It's, oof, yeah, I don't want to be a foolish person. 
I don't want to be a foolish servant or a foolish virgin that he speaks of. How do I not do that? By believing. So the next one is the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. In other words, he did nothing with it, right? After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your, your Lord. He, he also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he, who will, have, he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, I think this is an unbeliever. The, the last guy is the representative of the unbeliever who did nothing. Did nothing with what was given to them in the offer of eternal life. And so what happened? They were thrown, at, when the, the judgment came, they were thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, to compare this, just to kind of finish this thought, look at Matthew 13. So go back to Matthew 13 for a moment. These are the mystery kingdom parables. We'll spend quite a bit of time on these because Matthew 12 is the pivotal moment in the entire book. That is the pivot. 1 through 12 is talking about the behold the king. The kingdom is at hand and uh, receive your king, that type of language. After 12, so 13 on, I believe the offer is formally off of the table. And it's because the, the religious leaders have rejected the Messiah in the unpardonable sin. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned when the judgment came. Mm -hmm. Are you referring to the end of the tribulation that the judgment came or after the thousand year reign of Christ? Because there's there's two judgments, right? right. The first resurrection and the second resurrection. Right. So I wasn't sure what you were Yeah, so I would say that that's the great white throne. That's after the kingdom. I see. And then these two take place before the kingdom. And it's it, the basis seems, we haven't gotten there yet, but the basis seems to be who enters and who doesn't. Now, 
Based on how it's worded, it seems like, well, entrance seems to be by works. Well, no, because who's going to be doing those works? The believer. So they're classified as the righteous or the believer. Uh, we'll look at that more so in the sheep and goats judgment. But um, yeah, so this is during that 75-day interval after the tribulation before the kingdom. So Matthew 13, taking those three parables we looked at in Matthew 24, let's compare them to what Jesus said earlier with the wheat and tares parable. Look at Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop... Then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So does that make sense? So at the harvest. Now, when is that? Well, let's look at 36 through 43. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus. Verse 38, The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. So that's the question they asked, right, in 24, when is the end of the age? And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So same language, right? (coughs) Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this seems to kind of embody those parables that we just looked at in Matthew 24 and 25. Well, I would also add uh, the, dra- the parable of the dragnet. If you go to verse 47, and I'm really excited to kind of talk about this when we get to Matthew 13, but I want to propose to you that the mystery parables, that some say there's seven, I actually see eight. They seem to be in chiastic structure or inclusio structure. I, I'm not sure although a chiasm is kind of a form of inclusio. I'll talk more about that. But with it, they, in other words, a chiasm, there's a, this is oversimplified, but a degree of parallelism. So the first thing said is going to be the same as the last thing said. The second thing will be same as the second to last. The third thing will be same as the third to last. And then fourth. And sometimes there's a center, and usually that center is the main theme. If the parallelism stops in the center, then the whole thing is kind of taken as a, an inclusio. Is everyone sufficiently lost? <laughs> All that to say, the first, the meaning of my interpretation of the first parable seems to fit the interpretation of the last parable. 
The second fits the second to last. The third is actually fits with the fourth and then the fifth and the sixth. So there's kind of a four. I'll, I'll illustrate this when we go through it. But with that, the parallel parable to what I just read with the, the wheat and the tares is the dragnet. So if you go to the parable of the dragnet in 47, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be well, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And I want to laugh because they say, mm-hmm. they said to him, yes, Lord. Now, maybe they did, right? But it would be quite shocking if they did, at least perfectly. And so that seems to fit perfectly with those other three. In other words, they're speaking of the same event. There's going to be a great judgment that happens and this judgment, if you go back to the interpretation that Jesus gave, the explanation of the wheat and tares, who were the, the who did the wheat represent? The, the sons of the kingdom. And so this is all language pertaining to the Jews. Those who would be sons of the kingdom are the righteous. The wicked, they do not enter. They go to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the the judgment, like I said, and that's why I, I missed it, I think, is I believed all these things, but I didn't fit it into the structure, partly because there doesn't seem to be a clear single event where Jesus sits on a throne and does this. But it does happen, and it is a judgment, and there is a division. There's a basis of judgment. There's an outcome, right? So, therefore, it fits as one of the judgments. We are out of time, but any comments or questions? Yeah. I just could say this all fits with what Jesus told Nicodemus. Yeah. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. Yep. They should have been listening. Yep. It, well, right. And yeah, I think it's absolutely answered right there. How does one enter the kingdom? Be born again. How is one born again? Believe on me. What does it mean to believe on me? Well, you remember the same way that the Israelites looked upon, looked at the serpent and was healed? Yeah, do that, but with me. Look at me and believe, and you will be saved. It's pretty simple, right? Yeah. So which one of those were we missing last week? Uh, this one, the one we covered tonight. Okay, so, thank you. Yes. Sorry about that. So we'll talk about the sheep okay. and goats. So this is Jewish kingdom entrance judgment. This is Gentile kingdom entrance judgment. And the Gentiles, the basis of judgment seems to be how they treat the Jews. Interesting, right? And so uh, excited to look at that. Any final remarks, comments, questions?